0: It's good to see y'all this morning. How's everyone doing? That is good. That's good. It's good to see you in the first service. Somebody corrected me last time because I've been saying that the second service folks are kind of rowdy. So I've been calling them the rowdy second service. And uh, But somebody from first service was there that day and they said, you know what, we're live in first service too. So if that's true, let's give the Lord a hand. I don't, I don't know. A, okay, good. Um, And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. I just want to pass one to you. You need to see the scriptures for yourself. Never trust anyone in the pulpit. The word was written to you to receive directly from the Lord by his spirit. And so get one in your hand. And um, if you're visiting for the first time, just so I know who you are, raise your hand. Let me see you. If there's anyone visiting for the first time, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Um, Anyone else? All right. Good. good. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. I think I've seen you before here, maybe, but well, if not, if I haven't met you, shaking your hand, hug your neck, i love to do that before you leave. Um, and I'm glad to be here. If you're visiting, my name is Pastor Kevin, by the way, and I'm so glad you're worshiping with us. And I'm glad to be back home. I am out well have <laughs> No, I'm glad to be home. I think maybe some of y'all miss me. Um... <laughs> I was in another country last week, uh, called California <laughs> and, uh, truly another country. It seems anyway, um, anyway, I'm glad to be back, uh, in the east on the east side and, uh, here at Calvary Chapel. And if you have been with us in our study in the book of revelation, you know, we're still in chapter three with hopes, uh, of finishing it today. Um, as we're gonna pick it up in chapter three, verse 14 is where we are. As we've been studying through the seven letters to the churches, um, and if you're new to Calvary Chapel, any given time we're together, one of our distinctives is that we're traveling through a book of the Bible corporately, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, uh, and allowing the word to speak to us as as we study it in context, and allowing the Lord to speak and to move, which is such a critical thing, I think, even as we look at the letter this morning to Laodicea, I think this is such a critical thing for us to be doing in the times that we live in. Um, Not that it's far or different than what the Lord intended it for us to be doing, but uh, I'm so thankful now for 12 years. What is today's date? Anybody? 16th. So the 21st of February makes 12 years. I keep forgetting that. And so, yeah, it'd be 12 years since we started studying the Bible as a small group on a Thursday night down the street at the uh, Kids or Kids building. Um, And it was, you know, a lot smaller then. It was at least, there was 20 something of us in in a room. And I think we began uh, in the book of Acts, I believe. And, uh, you know, God blessed that. And so 12 years later, the word of God is still producing fruit here. Um, And as I've been telling you, it is the word of God that produces fruit within the church. It has power. And uh, many overlook that to uh, get into other things. And we want to be careful with that. And so if you remember, even as we begin to think about these seven letters, you remember that we do apply these, uh, you know, looking at them from a literal local church that existed in Asia Minor. Y'all remember that, right? During the first century, one of the cities was Laodicea. um, And so one of the churches was written there, but we've looked at all of them. And so we have the local application, Jesus drawing from some of the local now historical facts about the area and how it was impacting the city as he uh, exhorts each church and each location. We know that. But we also know that each one of the churches had to read the other six letters as well. So each church actually read seven letters. And we know that because it keeps saying over and over and over, the warning is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church's plural, right? So if you lived in Ephesus, you read Laodicea, the letter to Laodicea. But that also tells us that as individual Christians, we have to read how many letters? Seven Seven letters. And as a pastor, and I'll get into that in a moment, it's very very eye-opening, if you will, almost fearful, but refreshing to read each one. So we know that. So as a congregation, we have to look at the letter and we have to say, you know, which one of these conditions that we're looking at is prevalent here at Calvary Clayton right now. And that's important because we have to also evaluate it individually. Mm -hmm. And if it's in the church, it's impacting us individually, right? And why would you go to a church where the condition is wrong and not at least if you're there, try to be part of the process of saying, Hey, I see this condition that's important. Amen. And so um, these, these seven conditions, I call them, Jesus identified within the churches, because remember, there were other churches that Jesus did not write to. We're reading about Laodicea today, but there was a church right down the street in Colossae, which we call the Church of Colossians of which a letter Paul wrote to them. Y'all remember that, right? And so there was Philippi. There was the Philippian church. There was a letter that Paul wrote to them. There were other churches like Antioch and Corinth and Thessalonica, but Jesus chose these seven churches in order to point out seven conditions which concern him because there's a prophetic progression we see in these seven letters too. Y'all remember that? And we only can identify the prophetic progression because of the order in which the letters are laid out for us. And so when we look at it that way, we can see, uh, especially in the first three churches that Jesus writes to, that early progression, as we can see in Ephesus being the apostolic church of the first century, because the church in Ephesus were continuing against false apostles, those who claimed to be apostles, but were not. Y'all remember that? And we've dealt with that over and over and over. And likewise, we can see the, the second and third century church in Smyrna, as Smyrna was being heavily persecuted. And we can see that as the church went through heavy persecution. Y'all remember that, right? But then we could see what then happened, which almost looked like a time of rest in Pergamus, representing, I believe, the, the transition from the, the church of Jesus Christ being persecuted to becoming the state religion, which almost appeared to be rest, like we're good now. You know, because now the king is a Christian. He's declaring everybody should be a Christian. The persecution seemed to stop. And during that time, the church got set up for compromise, as many even began to compromise scripture. And they began to say, well, you know what? We're not looking for a kingdom to come. The kingdom has already come, and out of that, was developed a lot of false heresies like millennialism that, you know, we're not looking for a literal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. We're not expecting him to establish a literal kingdom for a thousand years. We're not even looking for the rapture to occur anymore because things are good. But that quickly led to some dark age stuff, which I believe Tire represents. The Dark Age, whence that state religion got solidified into a universal Catholic church, which began to really take things in the wrong way, and a lot of horrible things happened. And I believe we can see that in Thyatira. But then when we get to Sardis, Jesus says, This, you've got a name that you are alive, but you are what, y'all? Dead. Y'all remember that. And that speaks of that name, that reputation, that form of glory which probably to some degree represents the Protestant Reformation where all of these churches have a name attaching them to it, that they are alive because they can identify with John Wesley and Martin Luther and many of the, uh, the things that the Holy Spirit, the movements that he had to get the church uh, going in the right direction, but now are dead. And we can even see that it leads us to the last two churches. Today, the lukewarm church of Laodicea, but the last time we were together, a glimmer of light was the church of Philadelphia, the church that, remember, kept the word of God, taught the word of God, practiced the word of God, and kept his name. Y'all remember that? And so these last four churches, it begins to shift because you remember, it was was Thyatira that Jesus said to some of them, That they were going to get thrown into what? Great tribulation. Well, as those who were faithful had to hold on until he came. In other words, kind of resembling his coming for the church. Sardis, we learn, he said to those who overcame, they would be clothed in white garments, and he would not blot out their name. They would make it. And then to Philadelphia, because they were faithful to keep his word, he was going to keep them from the tribulation that was coming upon the whole world. And we see those pictures through all of this. And it's it's interesting because what we know from God is that God can judge society morally. He often does. Remember that? In the Old Testament, he gave the, the, the land of Canaan 400 years to repent until he could see that there was nothing left. And then he sent Joshua and the boys and Israel in to, if you will, establish Israel and to judge the Canaanites you know god knew when it was time for him to judge sodom and gomorrah as he pleaded with abraham or abraham pleaded with him and god said that i wouldn't spare the city for a certain number of righteous but he removed his righteous before he judged the city you remember that right from the old testament and so god can look into a society and he can he can discern where it is and i believe he can look into his church at any any particular age of the church and he can see the condition of his church whether a congregation or the church as a whole. And I want to keep that in mind as we now turn to this, this final church here, the church of Laodicea. Let's stand and let's read it. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. You there? Amen. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, blind, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand We pray, Father, that you remove all of the things from our hearts and minds. Now the, the cares of this life, the burdens of our hearts, the distractions, even from the room, that you would speak to us by your spirit as only you can, Lord God, that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son. We surrender to that. Now we love you. We thank you in this in Jesus name. We say together, amen. 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 You may be seated. You may be seated. So as we turn to this last letter, seems like, you know, uh, like a, a, a journey within a journey, you know, that we're coming to the end of. And I, I pray that you've been blessed, but we have to consider this one with an open heart. Everybody wants to be the church of Philadelphia in their hearts and their minds. Every congregation would like to identify with the church of Philadelphia. And the truth is that's a really, really uh, horrible way to approach the letters. Something is in this letter for us today. And we want to take it seriously. Notice Uh, You know, you remember the seven points, not going to give them to you. You kind of should have them in your notes. Now, how many of you are taking notes? Good, good. All right. So notice the greeting, the the first part of these letters. And it says, "To to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, now, the language changes slightly, but the main thing is it's to the angel, the angelos in the Greek, which is basically meaning messenger. And so it's to the messenger, the one who he has ordained, called, and placed there to be the messenger, the one who he speaks through, actually, to the church. And that's something that we have to remember. Jesus is the pastor of the church. Amen? And so, and then, and then those who he calls are servants, if you will, sent forth to, to simply serve within the church in a role that he's placed them in. But he's speaking to the human element, not to the angel, if you will. And we've talked about that over and over and over. God has never used man to instruct or give, deliver word to angels on this side. We understand that, right? So this is the human element, the pastor, the bishop, or the lead elder there in Laodicea. That's who he's writing to. And so to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans right very interesting language the language kind of flows the same all the way through the letter from all of the other letters for the most part remember it seemed like it was to the angel of the church in a location right y'all get that like there's a church that exists in each one of these cities and he's writing to the messenger of the church within that city here the language actually almost implies something that he's saying hey i'm writing to the angel of the church of the laodiceans because that's the way y'all view y'all yourselves that is your church And that's why later on, I think Jesus is presenting himself even further as, behold, I stand at the door. I'm waiting for y'all to let me in because you got your thing going on, which ain't got much to do with me. And so I want to come in and I want to I want to have intimate fellowship with you. Let me in. And 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 that's kind of how it begins to flow, even as we approach this thing. And I think that we have to almost consider that you have to consider that if you're going to continue to be a part of Calvary Chapel of Clayton, You have to consider that in your own life and in your own heart is that this is the thing that you need to know. Jesus must be at the center of everything going on within the church or it ain't church. It must be about him, for him, worshiping him, following him, seeking him. Because if it's not that, it is a maybe an amazing country club. Whereas I've told you, an amazing business that some group has launched through some organized church planning network of some sort who has a plan that's so perfect they can launch a church anywhere, anytime, and and, and basically start a business. And people flock to it and give their money to it because they want to be connected to God. But what they're often missing is, is it Jesus-centered, Jesus-led? Remember I told you the difference between a church that's alive, in my opinion, and a church that's dead? Is a church that's alive is still hearing his voice and answering it and being obedient to what he's saying. And that's, look, that is the scariest part of this as a pastor. Because it's very easy, the way church works today, when you get a staff going and you got some people around and stuff is happening, it's very easy to set the agenda and go. It's very easy to do that. We can do a lot of stuff. We actually have an army of volunteers here at Calvary Chapel of Clayton. For 12 years, that's kind of been proven. But we don't want to operate that way, do we? And I think you don't want to operate that way. You need to evaluate what you're doing in your life as a Christian. Are you you doing it with the motive to please your Savior who died for you? Is it all about him? Are you going to him daily? Are you spending time with him? Is he speaking into your spirit from his word and leading you? Are you hearing his voice? That's a struggle for all of us, isn't it? But it's necessary. I'm going to ask that question again because y'all left me hanging like I'm the only one. That is a struggle for all of us, isn't it? Yeah, because Satan is very crafty. And see, the Laodicean church is the most dangerous of all because this is a church that has, if you will, kind of set Christ off to the side, and now is wavering in the world. And so to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Now listen, let me give you a few pointers about Laodicea just so we can stay on point. Historically. The church in Laodicea or the city of Laodicea, like its two neighboring cities, Heropolis and Colossae, were destroyed. And often, often this whole region was plagued by earthquakes. But we know in AD 60, roughly, this whole area was hit by a major earthquake. Remember when we were going through the book of uh, Colossians, I told you about it. It was probably a year or two after Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. And he told him to make sure that the the Laodiceans read that letter. Do y'all remember this? And you Colossians read the letter from the La- that I wrote to the Laodiceans. Well, about a year or two later, the whole area was hit with the earthquake. Colossus was destroyed and not rebuilt. And Rome sent, if you will, uh, word to the area that they wanted to bring or provide aid, federal aid, if you will, to help them rebuild. And the, listen, the city of Laodicea was so wealthy that their response was no thank you. We need nothing. We got this. And the reasons why is because they were very wealthy. And one of the other things about Laodicea is their industry was amazing. Number one, they had three main areas, if you will, that they were very prideful of. They were the banking center of that region of Asia Minor, all of Asia Minor, because they they had a gold exchange. They, they were very wealthy. They had done very well for themselves. And two of the um, industries was one was textile. They had a glossy black wool that came from these, uh, these goats with black wool, actually, that they were breeding there. And they would take that and, and wove it into a very fine uh, fabric garments that they would wear, outer garments, and they were very famous uh, within the Roman empire. People loved them and they were very well known for it. And so that's one of the industries. There was also a medical school there and they would take some of the, the um, if you will, the elements of the earth there and they would develop various types of medical products. One was this eye that they would create into a powder and they would distribute it throughout the empire. And they were very well known for that. And they grew very wealthy because of all of that. And they were located on the, on the, on the Lycus River. And then the Lycus River is very interesting because what would happen is they would have nice fresh water flowing in the spring of the year, but in the summer it would dry out and they would have to, if you will, pipe their water in using aqueducts from Heropolis and Colossae. And Heropolis was known for hot springs. How many of you from California have been to the hot springs? Yeah, I've been to the hot springs uh, a couple of times, and, and, and people love that stuff, you know, and they hang out and, you know, they bathe in it. But they would pipe their water from, from that area, especially in times when the fresh water wasn't flowing, and it would start out very hot, but by the time it would get to them, uh, collecting all of the sediment and the minerals within the water, it would be lukewarm and not very well to taste, if you will. And so they, they had this distinction going on there. And Jesus will pick up on some of these things as we go through it. But notice what he says as he presents himself to them. Now, listen, this is a city that's prideful, extremely wealthy. Industry is booming and, and they feel they have need of nothing. And so Jesus writes to them and he says this in verse 14. He says, these things says, notice the amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation. Now, remember, Jesus always presents himself using imagery, mostly from chapter 1. And what he does is he presents himself to the church based upon the condition that they are experiencing, what they may be lacking or what they need. And he says here, these things says the amen. Now, we use amen often as a tagline at the end of a prayer, don't we? Okay, good. Nobody said amen that time. All right. All right. <laughs> Uh, But it would be okay if you did, because when we say amen, what we're saying is that's true, and we agree with it. You know, what we're saying is exactly, that is exactly right, and we're agreeing with it. And so amen, listen, he's saying, I am the amen. I am the one who is true. I'm the one who's steady, unchangeable, true in every way. And I am the one who, if you will, it, it, it all begins and ends with me. I am the truth. And they needed to know that because as they, as we go through this, we'll begin to see that they were, if you will, not standing for truth at all. He says, these things says the amen. He says the faithful and true witness, which we love. And that's a picture from chapter one because Jesus is the faithful and he is the true witness. He will witness truthfully about you before his father. And he has witness of his father before men, hasn't he? He doesn't waver at all. Jesus is truth, and he speaks truth. And that's what he's called the church to be. But sometimes we begin to waver. We don't always speak truth because truth is not popular. And we need to think about that even as a congregation. I believe that Laodicea and the church that was present there begin to waver. Are we wavering? Are we standing for truth? These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness. Notice this, the beginning... Look at it with me at the end of verse 14, the beginning of the creation of God. I love this. Beginning here, it means origin, that by which anything begins, the first person in a thing or in a series of things. So literally Jesus is the origin of the creation of God. We know that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and everything was made by him. Not anything was made unless it was made by him. So he is the origin. He is the creator of all things first, we know that. But remember also from chapter 1, verse 5, it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Y'all remember that? And the firstborn there was the, it meant the preeminent one. And I want to point to this because we've covered it thoroughly already in Colossians and in the first chapter of Revelation. But I need you to understand in case the cults come showing up at your house, they either ride bicycles or they come in cars and knock on the door by twos on Saturday mornings mostly because they can't find you on Sunday mornings prayerfully. And when we get the verses like this, or the Colossians, they try to tell you, see, Jesus is part of creation. He was created. He's just the first one who was created. And what they, they fail to realize is, no, he is the origin, the source of creation, and he's preeminent within creation. And so there's two parts of this. As it relates to the creation that you see, Jesus created it. As it relates to the new creation, which we are being in the resurrection, he's preeminent within it because he is the first one. It tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that that Christ is the first in the creation. Then afterwards, those who belong to him. You follow me? So he begins the resurrection. Colossians 1 says this on the screen. We know it. Chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. It says he is the image of the invisible God. We know that. The firstborn over all creation, there it is again, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions and principalities or powers. In other words, Jesus created the angels. Y'all see that, right? He created the angels. The angels worship him. All things were created through him and for him. So he created it all and it's for his purpose, his will, his pleasure. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. He's the beginning in the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. You see it there? That's his preeminence. He's the first in a new creation because he is the firstborn from the dead. He had to be the firstborn from the dead because if we don't see him in resurrection, we have no hope of resurrection. But because we see that he died and rose again, we know That we're going to rise again. The Bible says that when we see him, we'll see him as he is because we'll be like him. The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the what? Preeminence. And I love this because Jesus is trying to bring their attention back to some things now. He says, listen, I'm the truth and I'm the faithful witness of truth. And I'm the beginning and the origin in the Greek, the source of all creation." because you at the sins are getting it twisted now. You've looked away from me to things created. And you're regarding the things that are in your midst and, and your own wealth and all of these things. And what you have to remember is this, I'm the source of everything. And without me, you have nothing. And that's, if you will, the heart behind this final letter, this condition that the Christian church can exist in such a way that we actually can begin to forget the source of all things, the source of everything that we must have and what we rely on. And as an individual Christian, you can begin to function the same way, as though you yourself somehow are self-sustained and forget that there is only one that sustains, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he rebukes them. He has nothing good to say, by the way. There is no commendation. He goes right into the rebuke. Let's continue in verse 15. Y'all doing all right? Verse 15 says, I know your works. We know that because Jesus sees all things. Remember, he presented himself as the one who has eyes, a flame of fire. When Jesus looks at you, he can see everything. Everything is open and naked before his eyes. And so when you sit before the Lord or you lay on your face or whatever you're doing and you go before him, the good news is I can go before him. He sees all of the good that's in me, whatever there might be, and all the wickedness. Yet I am not consumed. I can humble myself before him and repent and call upon him. And and he leads and fills me with his spirit and guides me and and washes me in his word daily. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. We look at that sometimes and we, we say to ourselves, okay, so which way am I to take this? Not thinking about the historical stuff. I remember it was in 2000, no, it wasn't. It was in 1997. Yeah, that's when it was, 1997. uh, Somewhere off the Tidewater Drive in Ocean View in Norfolk, Virginia, in my apartment as a single young man by myself, laying on my living room floor with my Bible open, reading Revelation. Not knowing any historical facts, not understanding any Greek, just going through the word for the first time. And, and, you know, and I think about it that way because even then this spoke to me without all of that stuff because the Holy Spirit speaks. I love this. Y'all know the Holy Spirit can speak to the, to the new believer? Do yes. You know, the Holy Spirit can speak to your children when they're away from home, trying to figure it out if you are praying for them and giving them the word. I love this. And I read through this. And, and so sometimes, we know, we can think about this. I understood that very day there was something wrong. Something was not happening here. This coldness was not a good thing in my first reading of this, you know. So sometimes we say, Well, the cold must 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 be the, the, the ones who are either away from the Lord or not even saved, and hot must be those who are on fire for him. And that's one way we can look at it, right? And then the other way we can look at it is, well, cold water is good and hot water is good, right? But lukewarm is not good, right? We can understand it that way. Either way, Jesus is trying to say something to them. He's trying to say, Look. I wish you were cold because I could do something with you. Cold water's refreshing. It was an insult for a banqueter to put cold, uh, lukewarm water before guests. It would have to either be cold and refreshing or soothing and hot, right? Okay, so we can do something with both. So lukewarm means Jesus says you're useless and I can do nothing with you, right? Or I wish at least you were cold because if you were cold, not even believing in me and against me, there's opportunity for me to convert you. But the worst condition of all... The most dangerous condition of all that even I have found uh, personally myself in dealing with people is that the one who is lukewarm is the worst one of all. And they're like a little leaven that will leaven the whole lump if you let them hang around (laughs) new believers too long. That's why I'm always saying we must be careful what type of disciples we make. You know? And so he says, I see your works that you are neither cold nor cold. Nor hot. The interesting thing, the word cold here in, in the Greek, it literally means sluggish, metaphorically speaking, of, of one who is destitute of the, the warmth, warmth of the Christian faith. And we must be careful about that. Bible warns, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, I believe I have it on the screen. It says, and we desire that each, write it down, there it is, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, stay the course, Christian, that you do not become notice sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Christians can become sluggish. The apostle is warning, stay sharp, stay the course, do not begin to become sluggish. Now the word in the Greek for hot, zestos, it means boiling hot actually, not just warm, but boiling hot. It speaks of a fervor of mind and a zeal for the Lord. Now you've seen Christians like that, haven't you? Raise your hand if you've seen fervent Christians. What they saying in the Greek, when they say that, that brother's fervent, they don't mean that, you know, he's he's a good brother. <laughs> no, it means when he come in, everybody know he in love with Jesus and he ain't ashamed to show it. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, the one place you should see fervency is in the house of the Lord, in the house of the Lord. And we got to be careful that we do not begin to become sluggish as believers, but as the pastor Sluggish as a church is even scarier. What does that look like? You know, you all know what that Christian that so loves the Lord, the the one that we, man, I wish I could be like that brother. I mean, we'd be in the middle of the restaurant and 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 he's just shy of standing on the table and preaching a sermon. Y'all ever been to lunch with somebody like that? Let's tell the truth for a minute. You ever been to lunch with a brother who he doesn't embarrass you because of his faith, but he embarrasses you because his faith is stronger than yours. If you has ever been in a restaurant, just be honest. Like, dang, man, I don't even know I want to be around him. Because if I'm around him, we're going to end up witnessing to somebody. We're going to pray in awkward places. Come on, be honest. Yes. Yes. And not in a weird way either. Just a fervency. And people take note of it. Because the truth is we're supposed to be salty light bulbs. That's what we're called to be. We're supposed to be shining bright and salty the flavor. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There's supposed to be a fervency about the believer. And Jesus looked at them and he says says to them, I wish you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm, you're tepid, lukewarm. Listen, metaphorically, it speaks of the condition of the soul that is fluctuating between two things. So he's not saying you're cold to the point that you don't believe at all. He's saying that you're you're, you're fluctuating. In other words, you have, you're too cold to be hot, but you're, you're too hot to be cold. You're in the middle. You're indifferent towards the Christian faith. You believe but you're, you're kind of indifferent. It's kind of like, okay, whatever, I'm gonna go with this thing, but, but not enough heat to, to really, really be noticed by the world. You're just kind of existing as, as a believer. You know, we got to be careful of that. In first Kings, Elijah said this in first Kings 18, 21. I love this verse. It came to me. Here's what Elijah said. He came to the people and he said to them, how long will you falter between two opinions? I love that. When are you going to make up your mind? He goes on to say, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Who's your God? And the people weren't ready to receive it. They'd answer him not a word. Well, they answered a few minutes later after he slew 450 prophets of Baal, you know, on Mount Carmel. Then they knew, oh, the Lord answered and, and, and consumed the altar. God is God. Well, this is the question, Christian. How long will we falter between two opinions? To be influenced by the things of the world or to be set on fire by our God through his spirit. He says here, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't mean any harm. I don't know about you, but that's a scary verse. Look, I know I'm not a child of Jezebel, so I don't have to worry about being killed by death and thrown into a sickbed, right? I'm a born-again believer, so I'm good there, right? I know the Spirit of God is alive and well in me. Yes, I know all of these things, and I understand these things, but, but this is scary because he's talking to the church, and he says that you make me sick, I want to puke you out. That's basically what Jesus just said. Jesus just said, I want to I upchuck you because, if you will, I'm trying to get everybody in the room, You're sickening to me. Because the worst thing out there is the one that they think they're spiritually doing something, but in fact, they are not. And Jesus says, I wish it was one way or the other. You're wavering between the two. And because you're neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you. If you're reading the King James, it actually says, I will spew you out of my mouth the body only regurgitates something that's unhealthy for it and something that's horrible and even 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 nasty if you will to taste y'all know what it means don't you you know you can't stand to after to spit something up and this is what jesus is saying listen think about the last time you had to spit something up or throw something up. Just remember that for a moment. Remember that, okay. Now, remember how you felt to do that, right? Jesus is saying, there's a type, there's a condition that can exist within the church that is so nasty to me that I got to spit it out. That's what Jesus just said, and I don't want to be a part of that condition. Now, listen, let's look at it because we don't have a lot of time. Verse 17, he deals with the condition a little bit. He gives us a hint towards their attitude. Notice what he says here. And, and believe me, they understood it because they knew the difference between the fresh water that came from the river and the lukewarm water that came down the pipe. And most scholars believe that Jesus is referencing it this way because they, they would understand it that way. But whether you knew that or not, this is disturbing. And he tells us in verse 18, 17 and 18, why? Notice in verse 17, he says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable poor, blind, and naked. Y'all see that there? Oh, my Lord. Now, the interesting thing is this. The city actually said, we're in need of nothing. It was a wealthy city. They told the Roman government. It's documented in secular history that Laodicea said to Rome, we don't need nothing. We can take care of ourselves. You get that, right? The interesting thing to me is the fact, listen, that Jesus speaks so specific about the things that they were trusting in, that he is able to tell them that this, this particular thing, because what he's saying to them and what I believe is happening is Jesus is identifying that the attitude and the mentality of the world has now crept into the Christian church, and the Christian church is actually functioning the same way. They were wealthy, a wealthy city, the church was probably doing really well as well, and they've adopted that mentality. Let me, let me spend a few moments on it. Notice he says, because you say that I am rich and in need of nothing. It's a prideful condition that was in the city that's crept into the Christian church. The spiritual condition now reflects the secular pride that's in the world. If you watch long enough, things subtly begin to creep into the Christian church, whether it's psychology or whether it's uh, you know, materialism all of those things can begin to creep into the church, whether it's the way we worship that resembles the concerts that, we, that the, the secular uh, artists are putting out. All of those things begin to creep into the church. Let me give you a few things about riches in general, okay? Y'all stay with me. Riches can be deceitful. And we need to understand this because the prosperity gospel is one of the ways that it's crept into the church. Pro- the prosperity gospel teaches covetousness, okay? It teaches people to covet things and money as opposed to coveting God or desiring to have God. So riches can be deceitful. Timothy tells it to us this way in chapter six, verse 17, he says, command those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to notice trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Amen. Not to trust in uncertain riches, I always tell a story about a man I knew who was close to retirement. He was in his early fifties and he had done well. And I know this man personally, I won't call his name. He was preparing for retirement. He had plans. And then one day I looked at him and he looked different and I kept looking and a few weeks later he was walking very slow and I I, I asked what's going on. And he had come down with some liver disease, early fifties, six months later, you know, email went out around the company that he had passed away and when his memorial service was. We need to be trusting in the Lord, right? Riches can be deceitful. It's okay to have things, but it's not okay to let things have you. Riches can, can set us up for a fall. Paul also said in the same chapter, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. I just want to mention this to you this morning. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which draw men in destruction and perdition for the love of money. We know this is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not evil. We use money as a tool, don't we? But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some have strayed notice from the faith. This is why I have to set this before you. Money has caused some to stray from the faith. Do you see that? If you love money, you will stray from the faith, stray from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many, many sorrows. Money is a tool. It's not to consume our lives. Not that I want to spend time on this, but you can look at your own budget and you can discern if, if you are using money as a tool to worship God and to focus on him or if you love it so much it's consuming you and maybe even drawing you away. Look at your budget this week. There needs to be a godly balance. Proverbs 30, I won't finish this section today. Proverbs 30, verse seven through nine. Maybe you've never seen this verse. I encourage you, if you've never seen it, look at it with me. It says, two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Wait a minute, Pastor. He's saying don't give me riches. Well, just, just hear it out. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I become fool and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Here's the danger, you see. Or lest I be poor and steal and, and profane the name of the Lord. In other words, the, the, the writer of Proverbs is saying, Lord, give me what's due me so that I can stay close to you. Because I don't want the, 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 the accumulation of wealth to consume me, and i be lifted up with pride, and I'm not even looking at you anymore. See, I believe, it, I just believe this. When it comes to wealth, it's very simple, and I, I guess I'm a camp here since it's already 1015. <laughs> I think it's very simple. If you honor God with everything that comes in your hands, you do the right thing long enough, it, it's just kind of natural. You'll accumulate wealth because wealth is... It just accumulates if you do the right thing with, with the resources that put in your hands. You can be a non-believer, and that can happen, or a believer, and that can happen, okay? And, and that's just the way it is. It's, it's kind of proven. But when it begins to consume you, it becomes deceitful, and it deceives you, and it, it consumes your attention and your focus, and, and it draws you away from the Lord, and you begin to pursue after it as opposed to after the God that will allow it to happen in your life. And I love this church because here's the thing why I say this. In this room, there are people who are wealthy. And in this room, there are people who live from check to check. And in this room, you can't tell the difference between who they are. I love that. See, the guy in the parking lot, he can't look at what just came in and determine whether they're wealthy or not because some people are just so, you know, unwise that they just drove all of their, you know, means into the parking lot. And they're in debt to be able to do that. And, and there's, there's no wealth at all. They're just in debt because they wanted a nice car so they can, you know, look like something maybe. And then somebody who's truly wealthy might drive in with some, you know, car that gets, you know, 50 miles to the gallon. It's a little old thing and you know, it don't look like much. Yet they're wealthy. You follow me? It, it, it's not about any of that, though. And we got to be careful. I'm only camping out here because I can't finish anyway. So y'all just bear with me, okay? <laughs> and so I believe for the, for the Christian, the Christian is not one who gets consumed by these things. We want to worship God. And we even do it with what he puts in our hands. And we trust him with everything. And you know, I, I think that when we give to the Lord, what happens is he sanctifies the rest and he gives us wisdom and understanding and how to live and how to be frugal, and how to do the things that are right in our lives. And Jesus is calling this wealthy church out because they have learned, if you will, or they have strayed away from him, and they are now beginning to trust in their wealth, and it's consumed them. And see, the church in America is beginning to do the same. Now hear me out as we got to close. Because now the church, the church now in this last days, this condition is prevalent because the church can now begin to say that we don't need anything. We got everything we got now we don't Calvary Clayton. We're not saying, that, (laughs) but they can, you can look at them. They can, they can say, we got big buildings. Now we got to do a new building project because we wanted to look better. You know, we got all of these things. We can accomplish whatever we want. Yet Jesus is standing at the door and knocking and he's saying, if you open up, I will come in that plead, by the way, when we get to it next week, When he says that in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He's speaking to the individuals within the church. And he's saying, listen, if you would open up, I want to come in. I'll come back to it next week. He says, look at it with me. Verse 20, he says, I want to come in. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine. And for them, they understood it in that world because the church was filled with with Jews who were still, if you will, that same Middle Eastern mentality was prevalent, that to dine with someone was very special. That's why Jews didn't like eating with Gentiles, because they believe when you eat together, you become a part of one another. You follow me? And Jesus is saying, listen, if you open up, I will come in, and I will become a part of you, and you'll become a part of me, and we'll have intimacy together. He's pleading with the individual. Today, he's pleading with the individuals within our church, as well as he's pleading with us collectively. And that if you hear his voice and you open your heart, you don't harden your heart. You push everything aside. Bow your heads. We're over time. Bow your heads. Even now, we can come in this room so worried about stuff and what's going on in the world around us and in our lives. And today, Jesus would say, I don't want you to focus on any of those things. Listen for my voice because if you open your heart, I will come in and I will dine with you. Keep your heads bowed for a moment. It was this week, early in the morning, I'm, I'm studying, I'm reading, going through the motions. I'm tired. I'm dozing, sitting on my couch. And I get up, almost time to leave, and I get frustrated. And I was like, Lord, I don't hear your voice this morning. And I'm now, by now, I'm sitting in my closet, getting ready to get ready for the day. And and I'm talking to him, and he says, open it up again. I was reading through the, through Ezekiel, and there was judgment everywhere. And open it up again, and I opened it up again. And as I read that second time, he began to show me things that were concerning my heart, right in those pages that was filled with judgment. And he was teaching me even then, as I want to say to you this morning, that, that when we get before him with his word and we press in with him, he speaks to us. And some of you need to hear his voice with more clarity this week. Not Pastor Kevin's voice, but the voice of the Lord through his Holy Spirit as you're in his word. that he can remove all of the things that are distracting you, all of the things of this world and this world system. And he began to speak to you because that's where it comes alive. That's where our walk with him begins to come alive and it begins to bear much fruit. And I have to tell you by experience, the word is true. That Jesus will do that, and he will speak to you. You, He says, my sheep hear my voice. He will lead you. He will refresh you. And he, listen, he will make you zealous for him. We'll pick it up there when we come back. I'm so sorry we didn't get far today. We'll pick it up there when we come back together next week. If that's you today, with every head bowed, every eye closed, this is not even an altar call for salvation. This is for the one in the room that you really want to hear his voice. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You want to hear him. You want intimacy with him. And you haven't been experiencing it. And you want to press through. Raise your hand that I can pray for you today. Great. That's many of you in here. Man, because that's what we want. That's true Christianity. Let me pray. Father, you saw those hands go up by faith. Hey, why don't you stand where you're sitting so that, that you can really exercise some faith. Those of you who raise your hand, stand up. That's it. Father, you see them, their desire for you above all other things. And so, Lord, I pray this week that you would teach them you are our teacher, that you would teach them how to meet you, how to hear from you, that you would make your word alive and well to them, that they would turn to it and not trust in anything else, and that you would make it real, that you would make it alive to them, Lord God, that they would sense your presence with them, that their prayer life would begin to, to come alive, Lord God, and that their intimacy with you, Lord God, would be promising and fruitful and refreshing in their lives in such a way, Lord God, that they would be zealous for you, that they would become fervent for you, Lord God. And Lord, I pray as you do that in their lives this week, let it spill out in here when they come back in here amongst us, Lord God, that you would do a special work. We love you and we thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. We're out of time. Why don't we all stand and sing and worship the Lord.